0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today
1: with Byte. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment and Sirius XM Volume. And this is another episode of Totally 80s. If this is the first time you're joining us, why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram or email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. And you can also check us out on video at our Totally 80s YouTube channel. So do watch that if you are so inclined. And once again, joining me today is my partner in all things 80s and today, 1981, all things 1981, Mr. John Hughes, the other John Hughes. Lindsay, can we talk some more new wave or are we going to move on today? <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's funny because 1981 was such a mixed year. And this is part two of our 1981 discussion. We got into a lot of new wave talking part one, which makes sense. You know, the second British invasion, the beginning of MTV. But there was a lot else going on. There was new wave. There was old wave. There was medium wave. And here on our wavelength to talk things all things wave. We are welcoming back our special guest, Scott T. Sterling. He is a lifer when it comes to this. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about this guy. So pretty much around 1981 in the early 80s when Scott was barely a teenager he became obsessed with a wide variety of music not just new A, but also heavy metal and soft rock and everything in between what started off as lists of songs played on the local underground radio shows developed into his illustrious career writing about music and pop culture starting with this college paper but he has since gone on to write for billboard Rolling Stone, LA Times, Spin, NPR Vibe, and of course, Totally80s.com. You can read his work on Rhino.com as well as see him every Friday on the Rhino Report across social media and on Totally80s.com. So please welcome back to the podcast, the one, the only Scott T. Sterling. Hello.
2: I love the 80s. How you doing? It's good to see you guys again.
1: Good to see you again. We're still stuck in 1981, 40 years later, and one whole podcast episode later. But it was such a monumental year. We really didn't get into all of it. So we had to have you back to talk about all the other stuff that went on in a year that was so important to pop culture that four decades later, it's still on our minds. We haven't even gotten to the fact that, you know, if people were only listening to the first half of this, they'd be like, oh, so the only thing that happened in 81 was New Wave? No, as you guys will soon quickly attest, as you talk about your radio listening experiences, that was only, you know, part of the story. But some of the other big debuts that came out, the very underrated Business as Usual by Men at Work came out in 1981. I get really annoyed when people think they were just the novelty act that did Down Under. I think they actually did themselves a disservice by making this song that was kind of about like, hey, we're Australian and we like Vegemite, you know, it like, was a quick hit for them on MTV, but I think people sort of thought they were a gimmick act and they were just, Colin Hay is one of my favorite singers of the eighties. And I think that record songs like, I can see it in your eyes and stuff completely stand up. Billy Idol debuted that that year with his um, EP. And that's actually kind of funny because obviously I'm sure a lot of people listening know he came from Generation X and from this punk background. And he had that punk image, the snarl, the hair, but his first song, Hot in the City, sounds like a like John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown band song to me, or like a John Mellon Cougar song or something. Like that's not that was his first solo single, am I right? Hot in the City? It's like a bluesy bar bandy song. It's yeah, not it doesn't I, even sound
0: fish. I'm looking at you like the RCA dog because really that synthesizer line is like the the hook. It's very new wavy.
1: I don't know. Maybe it was He was like a new
0: wave song. Elvis to me on that. Yeah, yeah. I
1: got
2: very swaggery. And I don't just know. So I'm just, good. So good. I'm just good. thinking
1: of it from, I'm just putting myself back in when yeah. I first heard it on the radio without looking at the image and not having all these reference points I have now about, like, oh, that's a certain kind of synthesizer. Hey, I remember yeah. thinking it was an American artist. I don't Anyone? remember thinking it was a. We have to
0: remind everybody, I thought Tom Petty sang Rebel Rebel. So, okay.
1: You thought Tom Petty sang Rebel Rebel by David Bowie. Remember when I the think Bowie was that is a bigger <laughs> error than me possibly thinking that Billy Idol was American.
0: Exactly. So. All right.
1: And then the other one I want to bring up is Bow Wow Wow because. I was sort of telling the Lana Turner Schwab story and how I kind of looked at the discovery of Joanne and Susan from Human League as, you know, at their club in Sheffield as being like this great discovery story. But then there's the whole mythology of Malcolm McLaren discovering Annabella Lewin in like a dry cleaner when she was 13 and being like, okay, it was like a Johnny Bravo situation. Like, okay, <laughs> can you sing? You'll fit the suit. And I was so jealous of her at the time because I wasn't much uh younger than her when bow wow wow came out so it was like it seemed within my reach that if i had like an after school job that like some impresario spengali would be like hey you want to replace boy george and this cool new wave band although in retrospect perhaps it's a good thing that i wasn't asked to be in a band and pose naked on a cover with a bunch of grown men on the cover
2: of it was so scandalous what
1: the hell? Oh, we, how, we were, how, we were so
2: scandalized by that whole mythology and story and imagery and could not get enough of it it was like both terrifying and so attractive at the same time yeah. because you could you could feel that it was like the energy was just like what is happening in this photograph like what is and he did how old is she and we were just all, we were all just so like, "Oh my gosh!" But then, like you put the record on, it was so good. But if that, that scandal definitely helped drive just our imaginations of like these people are on a whole different plane of existence. I
1: mean, it, it was scandalous at the time, but not the way. I mean, now if it happened at a time like Malcolm McLaren would be getting arrested. Oh like yeah. The, oh, yeah. The guys in Bow wow, wow would be getting arrested. I was, you know, a 10-year-old or whatever, as a child, thinking like, I wish I was her. There was no <laughs> part of me that was like, oh, I wouldn't want to be naked on the cover of, you know, uh, Sea Jungle, Sea Jungle, like with a bunch of men at twice my age. I was like, oh, I'm really jealous. Like, she's a kid, and <laughs> she's you know, all of my new wave dreams of being in this really cool band that's on the charts with, again, a cover, you know, I Want Candy, was, but that was later. But, yeah, 1981, it was, man. It was, really, know, it, was it was hard to... Hard to- to
2: even articulate what it was about the whole Bow wow, wow imagery, that kind of titillated us so much. But it it did. It was just like, you could just feel that it was, this wasn't supposed to be happening. You know, it was very, it was, even the way the, the photo was a, a copy of an old photo. But the way it was yeah. situated was like, we're hidden away in this corner by the lake where no one can see us, up to our scandalous doings, whatever they are, with this random naked child. Ah.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, good. now I look it through the lens of, you know, 40 years later and go, ah, eh, I feel kind of gross that didn't bother me at the time. But, I mean, the music actually still sounds quite avant-garde, at least on that really, first good. record.
0: Really, know. really good. I'm kind of jealous you guys had exposure to this stuff. Uh, and all I remember is I used to record songs off the radio all the time. And uh, I Want Candy was never added to any playlists of the stations I lived listened to as a kid although oh, yeah. they did do it on smash it or trash it and I got it on tape because I used to yeah, always but- Heard the smash or trash it song because they were always new wave and different. They were testing them out, and boy, did it get trashed! I was
1: about to say, did they? They had to have smashed no. it. What the no. hell?
0: They, they was it
1: because they were outraged by the teenage nudity, or they? No, they, they
0: like- came up. It was just like, oh, this is you know, this isn't Cleveland rock. This is right. sissy stuff, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a bummer that I remember that being trashed that year in 1981. And another one I remember getting trashed big time was "Ooh, Baby, Ooh." by The Knack, which I was super bummed because I love, I love round trip. but that's a whole nother podcast. Well, as,
1: as I said, it wasn't all new wave in 1981. And this was actually a quite interesting exercise for me, you guys, because as I was preparing to do this, of course, as you can probably tell, I had quite copious new wave notes because that's how I remember this landmark year of the second British invasion. But then I went and looked at the charts for 1981, not so much Duran Duran and Bow Wow Wow. So, here is, I'm not gonna obviously read the entire chart, but if I look at the chart for the year end of 81, the number one song was Betty Davis Eyes by King. Which Charles. is actually
2: a new wave anthem and an incredible song, I must add.
1: It is, but there's a okay. You could you could you could sort of say that has for My, from my childish
2: brain at that time. That it was, was the wave. most it was the most new wavy, synthry song I'd heard. It was just so like synthesizer and like icy and cold.
0: And video
1: was very new wave because it had, from what I recall, a lot of scarves and mimes and Venetian blinds in it, which were things you had to have in a video in 1981.
0: Directed by your man Russell. Russell Mackay um, did that. He sure did. And not did
1: the same budget he got for uh, Hunger like, like the Wolf, the Wolf Save the and Saver Prayer. <laughs> they did not go to Sri Lanka for the, the the Betty Davis Eyes video.
0: But it's I I think it's very much a new wave song. I think yeah. it's very uh, holding on to the trappings right down to that uh, synthesized hand clap and the fact that EMI America was able to break that single Kim Wilde Kids in America very new wavey song in 1981 but they couldn't break Duran Duran and i have to wonder if it was because they were on harvest in the US as opposed to being on EMI America proper but the thing about Betty Davis eyes it was such a huge song nine non-consecutive weeks at number 1 it was knocked out of number 1 for one week by Stars on 45 Okay. Well, uh, but just to put a pin on Betty Davis eyes, it was so huge that a song as weird and as bizarre as "Draw of the Cards" was able to coast off that momentum and get to number twenty-eight. Kim, "Draw of the Cards" was a top forty hit.
1: I don't know that song. That was a deep dive. But to your okay, so maybe you could argue quite convincingly that Betty Davis eyes was new wave or at least new wave adjacent. But when I'm going over this list, let me just there's certain things on it that were new wave or at least new wave adjacent, like Kiss on My List by Holland Oates. This was their new wave period. And they actually had their biggest chart year in 1981. We could do a whole podcast on Holland Oates. And you know, like Rick Springfield's Jesse's Girl was actually the number Jesse's Girl was actually the number one song in America the week that MTV debuted. And you could say that was a new wave adjacent song. But here are some songs that I'm looking at just from this list that I pulled up that I can't you can't really make an argument that they at all were under the umbrella of new wave. Endless Love by Diana Ross and Lionel Richie was the number 1 number 2 song of the entire year, followed in yeah. number 3 by Lady by Kenny Rogers also Pet. So Lionel Richie was having a good year. Number 4 was just like Starting Over by John Lennon who obviously we were coming off of the December 1980 assassination of Lennon and in 1981 the whole country was reeling and, and John Lennon had a couple hits in the uh, posthumous hits. Some of the other songs that are on here, I'll just randomly say that are very much showing that as I said a while ago, 81 was a super mixed bag. I Love a Rainy Night by Eddie Rabbit, Celebration by Cool and the Gang, 9 to 5 by Dolly Parton, Keep on Loving You by... ARIO Speedwagon, the uh, theme from Greatest American Hero, Morning Train, 9 to 5. Another Apparently, talking about 9 to 5 was important <laughs> back then. A couple of Juice Newton songs, Queen of Hearts was up there. Sukiyaki by Taste of Honey, which I think, along with Stars of 45 is kind of like a holdover. The disco hadn't completely died after 1979. Uh, another Juice Newton song, Angel in the Morning. Love on the Rocks by Neil Diamond. Every Woman in the World by Air Supply, the one that you love by Air Supply, which was the number one song in the country a week before MTV debuted. And I just did an interview recently with Air Supply where they say MTV never played them once, literally once. And they had several ten hits between 81 and 83. Guilty by Barbara Streisand and Barry Gibb, The Best of Times by Styx, Elvira by the Oak Ridge Boys. I'll stop now, but all of the songs that I just mentioned. We're all in the top 40 songs for the year ending of 1981. And most of the songs I just mentioned absolutely were not new wave songs. Some of them were soft rock. Some of them were sort of holdovers from disco, as I said. Some of them, you know, like the stick song, were from like the dinosaur rock that was sort of beginning to die out, that MTV was starting to phase out, but it was still very much alive. This is a very eclectic top 40, I just... I just scanned yeah.
0: here. And you, you you guys have to remember we're seeing this through our new wave lens for sure. But two of the biggest acts of that year and they it was they were just getting started far from being uh, extinguished by new wave. REO Speedwagon high infidelity was a monster, monster as big as journey for a minute.
1: Easily. Yeah, we have we like right
2: all, here.
0: We've
1: not <laughs> talked about journey and one of the biggest albums of 1981 was escape and probably if i was if someone was just saying to me what do you think is the song from 1981 that's had like the longest shelf life or the longest multiple lives it's don't stop believing
0: journey was the second one i was going to mention uh escape and jay giles band freeze frame which freeze frame you could kind of argue they took some elements from new Wave. seth yeah that video
1: if that video has paint splatters in it it's new wave
0: (laughs)
2: Yeah. Freeze Frame is a really, I love that record for a lot of different reasons. But the biggest reason is that finally this band, this amazing American band, who had been rocking their hearts out for more than 10 years across the country, they're notorious and one of the greatest live bands in the country, couldn't sell a record to save their lives, had finally sold some records. And even in Detroit Rock City, where a lot of people were not happy with the direction they went in, it was just like, you know what, man, it's cool. Hey, like those hey. dudes have paid every due you could possibly pay, and it was so nice to see Peter Wolf and those dudes just make some money and get on MTV and have some hits all over. Don't
0: you, don't you want to strangle the label though for not releasing Flamethrower as a single? I mean, in Detroit,
2: Flamethrower was bigger than any of their other bigger than Freeze Frame, bigger than Centerfold. Thank ditto. you. The Electrifying Mojo was our DJ, the greatest radio DJ of all time. We're talking beyond Wolfman Jack, which to me that's big, big praise. Wow. This guy played center, he played flamethrower like it was he would play it like five times in a row. Like he beat that song. You'd be driving down Gratiot it, and it's like every black every black car, every car with black people was pumping mojo, and mojo was pumping the Jay Giles band.
0: And like, flamethrower crossed <laughs> over to Black Radio in Cleveland as well. You have you know, from that record, centerfold, number one. Freeze frame, number one. All right, time for that third single. We're gonna go with Flamethrower. No, let's go with Angel in Blue. So
2: remember, stupid. So Blue. Blue. Did they make a video for Angel and Blue?
0: They did. They're, you know I mean, it's a cool it's,
2: ballad. It's very dramatic. Yeah, you know, but, kind oh of man. back to the the sanctuary days when Peter Wolf was still with Faye Dunaway, but yeah, it, it just it didn't really fit. It was a bad move. They should have just flipped over and uh, had a free frame single plot flamethrower. They could
0: have had three number ones in a row. Well,
1: it's interesting because uh, to use the word lens, it is you know the new wave lens or the regional lens. Like you have a very different idea of what Jay Galls meant to you because of Detroit and because the DJ you just mentioned. I did think of them as a new wave band because my because my (laughs) entry. Going to the Jay Gals band was MTV and probably yeah. Centerfold before, I and there the was band. there was this mythology that was not true, but everyone thought that one of the sexy girls in the Centerfold video was Martha Quinn because yeah. there was a girl with like short black hair. So there was that, and also like the video for Freeze Frame was so new wave looking with the paint fight and like them in the overalls and the white background. And I do remember it's so funny how easily we could be impressed forty years ago. The scene in the Centerfold video. Where they strike the drum and it turns out to be a bowl of milk just blew my freaking mind. You would have thought I thought that was like some CGI, like you know, Avatar movie special effects. That you, I was like, oh, it was milk. Like I I saw them as a new wave band because I from because I um was introduced to them visually and seeing them on MTV next to NXS or Duran Duran or Adam Ant, it, like didn't seem there were certain. Bands, I guess you could call classic rock that MTV was playing because they just had to kind of fill up space in 1981. Like when they played an April Wine video or somebody, I'd be like, well, this doesn't fit. But when they played Jay Gyle's band, it like I feel Jay and we did a whole podcast, John and I, about like bands that went new wave in the 80s. And I kind of feel like at least visually Jay Gall's band did because oh. they very much and and
0: the, the seeds of this started with Love Stinks a year earlier with. Big you know, time come back i
1: love that, you know with like the person and like with like, the fish and stuff it's like very barnes and barnes Ario Speedwagon though they didn't so much embrace it but mtv did play them but i think besides the fact that like journeys uh don't stop believing they were their power ballads were played at like every prom or school dance in the 80s the Last American Virgin, which is the best teen sex movie of the 80s because it ha- it's realistic with its. The plot, only with one that told the, told the truth. The end, but it has a truthful end. The only one that tells the truth. Absolutely. But I mean, Ario Speedwagon was like all over that movie. It was practically like a Simon and Garfunkel, the graduate situation. Like every two minutes, an Ario Speedwagon. Like, did, R- did someone related to Ario Speedwagon direct <laughs> that movie? Because they were all over it, but it really fit. And it plays over the sad ending and forever seared REO Speedwagon in my brain.
0: Here is how I know High Infidelity made it. When it became a a topic of discussion for an entire Sunday school uh, class with our youth pastor about how evil this album High Infidelity was because the cover shows a prostitute finishing up with one of her Johns getting
1: drunk no. My- <laughs> <laughs>
0: no this is just a great example of how people see things that are not there uh and yeah it just it, that's how i knew oh i gotta listen to this record i mean th- this was like the greatest recommendation for me
1: you know what i think is also since we're on the subject of uh reo speed wagon related misunderstandings is there are certain songs that clearly were not meant to be love songs like one that comes up Uh, is the one I love by REM or Every Breath You Take by The Police that were clearly not meant to be a song that one should play at like their wedding or something. And Keep On Loving You is a song. I've talked to Kevin Cronin about this in an interview that like a lot of people would be like, oh, that's our song. And you'd be like, really? The song I wrote about my wife cheating on me and how everyone is gossiping about you? All right. It's not meant to be like... I mean, I guess because they just hear the part goes, I'm going to keep on loving you. But that's a song about high infidelity. So... But that was definitely, to go back to sort of what we're talking about as we ease out of our new wave conversation, there was a lot of soft rock, like I mentioned, Air Supply were doing very well still in 1981. We, you know, REO Speedwagon, I wouldn't call them soft rock, but they had a lot of like soft ballads and stuff. But let's not forget about the Grammy history that was made in 1981. (laughs) History that was a record that was unbroken until Billie Eilish came along last year. The first time and for 39 years, the only time that someone won what they call in the Grammy world, the big four, which is album and record and song of the year and best new artist Mm was someone I interviewed recently about this milestone, Christopher Cross. You could have been bigger than Christopher Cross in 1981. He, like I said, made Grammy history. It was a record that no one, not even like Amy Winehouse or Adele or whatever, Could do, could tie until Billy Eilish came along. Thirty-nine years later, he had a really big year. The Arthur music theme also came out that year, which he later won an Oscar for. We have to remember that Christopher Cross is halfway to an EGOT, and actually, (laughs) actually, he's kind of two and a half because he was nominated for an Emmy as well for his Growing Pains theme. So he's Grammy-winning, Oscar-winning, Emmy-nominated, and in you know February '81, when he was, he won over when he won. When, when his self-titled debut album won Album of the Year, he won over Frank Sinatra, Barry Gibb and Barbra Streisand, Billy Joel's Glass Houses, and The Wall by Pink Floyd. Okay? That's how big he was.
2: He tells a couple of great stories. One is about how he was next to Barbra Streisand backstage when they were announcing that award, and she thought for sure she won it, and he won it. He's like, yeah, I don't think that she liked me very much after that. And he's got a really great story about meeting David Gilmore, and he's like a big fan because, as well, you know Christopher Cross is a total Austin guitar god. Mm-hmm. He meets David Gilmore. The first thing Gilmore says is like, "I'll never get over you beating me for that damn Grammy." <laughs>
1: but he was saying it in joke, Jess. He was saying
2: it. He was definitely joking. But Christopher Cross was like, you know, still, it's like my hero, and like that's how he remembers me. He,
1: he told sad. me a story when I interviewed him for the anniversary of his win for Yahoo. He told me a story that I thought was kind of nice. So as I mentioned, uh, Glass Houses was also nominated and Billy Joel at that point by 81 was, you know, he was still one of the younger nominees on that list, but he was established and he was very respected singer songwriter, which is Christopher Cross's wheelhouse as well, even though some people forget that. And when Christopher Goss won, he said, yeah, there was this ripple effect in the audience of people being kind of surprised or being like, who is this young kid who just is winning all the awards and is beating out all these, you know, like established legends. And he said that when he came out, Billy Joel stood up to clap, like gave him a standing ovation, stood up. He was in the front row and when you know he did that like everybody else in the audience was like well i guess we should you know billy joel is standing up being gracious we should probably all stand I and mean, he got a standing ovation it was cuz of billy joel that's very so cool <laughs> this was the beginning of 81 6 months later of course mtv came out but i don't think we should completely blame mtv or or not maybe blame's not the right word but uh, credit MTV with everything because, you know, I might have a different, I, I got MTV pretty early and I may have a skewed idea about how many people exactly were really watching MTV in 81. I think it took maybe to a year or two before MTV was like in everybody's homes and became as influential as it was. But, you know, the writing was on the wall, so to speak. And, you know, Christopher Cross and some other soft rock artists like Air Supply, maybe even like Ario Speedwagon to a degree, they weren't really going to get on board with the music video thing, but it's, you know, just to think about in 1981, you had Christopher Cross winning all the awards, but you also had, you know, Depeche Mode and Bow Wow Wow coming out with albums. What a year.
0: It's crazy because you think about what you just mentioned, Air Supply, Christopher Cross, uh, Barbara Streisand. That's an entire genre of music that's gone. Yeah. It's gone no one does adult pop i mean where's adult
2: contemporary today where is that you could
0: could argue adele i suppose or thing you know something like that but i mean just that unashamed to be corny uh i don't even know if corny is the word unashamed to just show the emotion in the lyrics and and to do a song like sailing You, you know we laugh and we snicker at it now but adults think about sailing, you know? And well, it's Yacht cool.
1: Rock did come back. I actually saw yeah. Christopher Cross, Kenny Loggins, and Michael McDonald all play at the Hollywood Bowl a couple of years ago. And they didn't bill it as a Yacht Rock show. Like, it wasn't called sure. Yacht Rock on the marquee of the Hollywood Bowl. But people got the memo anyway because everyone was showing up in sailor hats. I had a parasol in my drink. I wore a dress with parrots all over it. People were into it. I do think people – are nost- I hear elements of that music, and, and certainly a group like Holland Oats or whatever in modern music. But to go back to Holland Oats, there were some bands that maybe were soft rock or soft rock adjacent. You could kind of say like a song, like songs like Rich Girl and She's Gone that Hall and Oates did in the 70s for that. But then they embraced the new wave thing. Hall and Oates absolutely did. As I mentioned, 1981 was their biggest year with uh, the Private Eyes album. That was their biggest chart year. But someone who was sort of a soft rock person and then very much reinvented herself in 1981 was Olivia Newton-John when she got physical. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You probably both... Perspectives on the physical sure. phenomenon, but I'm curious to hear both. I'm all ears.
0: O n j w o n j all Olivia all the time. And it was kind uh,
1: of scandalous at the time. It was like a real life Sandy transformation for her to go from this girl next door to like this sexy thing in aerobicsized eroticized gear. It
0: started with totally hot. You know, I knew Olivia, and then it really she really leaned in with physical and. That was one of those songs, along with Do You Think I'm Sexy by Rod Stewart, that was forbidden in our household because of the lyrical content. Uh, But we listened to it anyway. Who cares? And, uh, you know, you you had Heart Attack, uh, Make a Move on Me. I mean, that album was a monster. And she, she brought headbands back. Uh it was a whole thing. Leg warmers.
1: One leg- thing she contributed to the eighties. It was that also she had her koala blue store. I have a koala it's blue cool. sweatshirt, but the whole sexiness of, it, and of course a big thing that started in the eighties, it kind of continued and probably uh peaked with flash dance, but the whole like, and you know, of course the movie perfect, but you know, the, uh, the aerobics craze, the fitness craze, the wear. everyone now wears like a- athleisure, they call it now, like, you know, um, Beyonce has a whole empire with Ivy Park. But the idea of wearing workout clothes when you had no intention of working out, you just wanted to look fashionable to go to the grocery store, you know, she was doing that. The leotards, the headbands, obviously, even though it was a song about getting sexy, it was like a double entendre about fitness. The music video was not aged well, I have to say.
0: am I going to jazzercise or am I going to meet people at Chi-Chi's for margarita? <laughs> <laughs> the
1: music video though, man manages to fat shame and make a joke about gay oh. men in the same three minutes. And yet no one was much like no one was offended by 13 year old Annabella when naked on an album cover in 1981. No, I don't remember people. I'm sure there were people particularly people who are heavy or gay being offended by the physical video but i do not remember a public outrage at the time over uh, this video
0: as a gay guy i was thrilled
1: sexy, you know uh, pit crew guys at the yeah. end
0: i can't show that i'm excited but i am really no. uh and it, it was funny because just I, it, of the major image changes that were happening in the '80s with these old guard '70s artists, she had one of the most extreme ones that was successful. I think Grease and Sandy really definitely helped because that put her in a different light to people like, "Ooh, she, you know, she if she compromises all her principles and changes everything that she is. She can get the guy." That's uh, great. <laughs> yeah.
1: I'm sure the Go-Go's approved. Yeah, I hate that movie. It's all about Grease too for me. But yeah. anyway.
0: But you know, you have other bands that tried it and just did not succeed. ABBA, The Visitors, is a very new wave album. Very I wanna, much,
1: I want to end with ABBA because oh, okay. we've spent a lot of time throughout this po- podcast talking about doors opening. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, soft cell and the human league opening doors, auspicious debuts by the go gos and Depeche Mode, and Duran Duran, and Spandau Ballet, and Men at Work, and whoever else. But in 1981, when some doors opened, others closed. It's And and the final album by ABBA was in 1981. And I know you're a big ABBA fan. I assume, Scott, you are as well. And I'm very curious to get your thoughts because they ended it here. But they ended it uh, with I think they should have left the door open because with a very different sounding record that I think could have led them down some interesting paths that they continued in the eighties. So let's talk about the visitors. I'm going to leave it to you guys because, uh, especially John, since you brought it up and I think it's a great way to bookend this conversation.
0: I, I agree. I think they should have held on for at least one more record and tried to see how they would fit in because they were definitely going down the right path and human league, which we started with is a great way to contrast this human league took everything ABBA did and brought it to 1981. Two female singers, uh, super pop melodies, they were unabashedly pop, they didn't hide the fact that they were pop and trying to get hits. And Human League kind of, I think, was very influenced by ABBA, but ABBA was very influenced by the Human League in 1981. The Visitor's huge dance hit uh, everywhere. It never charted anywhere successfully, except in the U S it got to the mid fifties or sixties or so, but it was a huge dance hit. And it was crazy that ABBA would have a dance hit in 1981 and other, other things in the album are traditionally ABBA. One of us, you know, is an ABBA ballad, but you had really adventurous things as well. Past that they had under attack, which was a very new wavy synthy song Which you know, like I said, it's it's, uh, the day before you came. Probably their greatest song ever is their final single, Uh, "Blamage." All Blamage covered. Blamage covered the day before you came. The same year they liked it so much. Blamage had a hit with it. Abba did not.
1: Unaware. Oh my god, that's amazing. So and the winner takes it all. I think was like their biggest chart hit. I believe that was a huge chart hit. That
0: came from the album before, though. That came. Yeah, uh, Visitors had a When All Is Said and Done.
1: The I most- did look at the chart, though, the one that I was reading off of, and The Winner Takes It All was one of the top songs of 1981. So they that theme was carrying over.
0: Yeah, um, When All Is Said and Done was the, the U.S. single from that record. And it did get in the 20s. Uh, it, but it was most traditional ABBA-sounding song on that record. So it's not a surprise that was the single here. But uh, again, one of those things that, Besides that single didn't resonate, didn't connect with people. I had to special order the album in order to get it. (laughs) You know, Cleveland Radio wasn't going anywhere near ABBA at this point. I I was drawing ABBA logos on my notebook and being made fun of at school.
1: (laughs) I mean, I feel like. I've always looked at The Visitors as being ABBA's, um, their rumors or whatever. It's a breakup yeah. album. It's a great breakup album. But do you think, do you guys think that because they kind of famously were known for very happy songs and they were famously known as being two two married couples, that the fact that they were going down this darker path with breakup songs that were autobiographical or at least semi-autobiographical, that, that their fans just didn't want that from them?
0: That's the prevailing thought, is that this is their personal album about their relationships benny and bjorn will tell you absolutely not the only song that is based on the their personal breakups is when all is said and done which is like you know hey we had a good ride you know you know see you later uh, good life uh, the rest <laughs> are fiction they claim are fictional characters breaking up and doesn't really reflect the band but let's oh, oh. do anything in detroit <laughs> yes. zero yeah, Were you a absolutely.
2: fan I love early ABBA. It, it was kind of around, you know, like songs like Dancing Queen to me are very foundational in terms of what I love in music in general, from the lyrics to the, the vibe of it, the swirliness of it, the, the beat. I love early ABBA. By 81, it's it's as if they'd already broken up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, when I think back to the, I remember hearing The Visitors and being like, whoa, what is this song? And it was like, this is the new single from ABBA and being like, and you could have knocked me over with a feather. I couldn't believe that this really cool song was by Alba. And I was just like, oh, that's cool. They're still like, and it just seemed like they were just still kind of kicking. And I never really thought about it after that. And it was like, oh, yeah, they don't exist anymore.
0: Oh. It does yeah. kind of represent the end of the 70s. And here we are yeah. in the 80s. And, you know, got to move aside and let those new kids in the Human League take over.
1: Absolutely. So how do we want to sum up 1981? It was a very mixed bag. Obviously, we had a, a slew of British Invasion new wave acts taking over and taking over. MTV, we had you know a lot of kind of holdovers from disco, from soft rock. We had the the classic rock still kicking. We didn't even mention that I believe Motley Crue put out their debut album in 81. So like the beginnings of hair metal were starting with Too Fast for Love. Like Super Freak by Rick James to for don't stop believing by journey we got the beat you know it was it was very all over the map but it seems like there was something in the water what's like the through line if you guys can sum it up about what was happening in 1981 it, you know there's a reason why we devoted such a long conversation mm-hmm. to it at 40 years later it's cuz it was a really important game changing year
0: i think it was there was a there was a signal being sent to the old rock establishment that was best summed up by kim wild in kids in America, New York to East California. There's a new wave coming up. I warn you.
1: Well, you know what? In 1981, apparently people didn't know their geography well because two of the biggest songs referenced East, a, California, East California or South, Detroit. <laughs> South no Detroit, exactly. California or South Detroit, <laughs> I do, I'm sure, Scott, you can say no, there's no such thing as South Detroit, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, right? Yes and no. Yes no and one do. says that. No one says, I'll cut out to South. No, no one says it. No one, LA, one says it. But says, oh, the reality is, like it.
2: if you look at a map of Detroit, there is a South Side. It exists. Don't, you Don't call it a thing or any. I mean, people will say that Windsor is South Detroit.
1: <laughs> but no one will say, oh, I'm from South Detroit. Just as never, I will, I will never, someone who grew up in, never. in Southern if, California. If I, to, if
2: I were to say to someone in Detroit that I was from South Detroit, the I was from South Detroit, they would want
1: to fight me. Well, if someone, if I said to someone, oh, I grew up in East California, they would be like, where? Exactly. Like,
0: I'm going to go stay in East California to get out of town.
1: Why while. would you go to California and go to East California? You might as well just go to Arizona and <laughs> Nevada and you know, go, go to the Grand Canyon or Las Vegas. But anyway, geography aside, 1981 was a wonderful place that will forever live in our minds and our hearts. And it was a great year for music. It was the best of times. And the the best best. of times. I've had the best of times. Actually, you know what?
2: Actually, is a through line for all that music. The songwriting. If you even as people were were losing and winning and trying out new sounds, and they were all writing such incredible songs that underneath the affectation was a a great song. And I think for me, I really missed the great song—the song that you can break down on a piano or a guitar, and it's just. An incredible song absolutely and 1981 and- was packed full of killer songs you could release today as brand new hits
1: yep. absolutely and that is why we are still talking about many of those hits 40 years later thank time. you guys i've had such a great time i'm Lindsay mm-hmm. parker i've been joined today by john hughes and scott t sterling and we want to thank you for listening remember to give us a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform and we'll catch you next time with totally 80s the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever don't forget to follow us on facebook and instagram at totally 80s and please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform until our next episode catch you on the flip side